This is the Monday, September 25th, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels across half the 20th century. We'll follow one family's quest to recover property stolen by Nazi Germany. It was only a single theft in the National Socialist State's vast, systematic plundering of Jewish wealth. But the Wolf family's history quickly becomes ours as readers, and we find ourselves rooting for justice. Chief investigator on this journey is journalist Dina Gold. As a child, Dina's grandmother, Nellie Wolf, told her stories of the glamorous life she had led in pre-war Berlin, and how she dreamed of one day reclaiming the majestic building that had housed the family fur business. Grandma Nellie didn't live to see the fall of the Berlin Wall, but when the wall did come tumbling down, Dina marched right into the German government ministry, by now housed in the former building of her family, and declared, I've come to claim my family's building. She tells the story in her book, Stolen Legacy, Nazi Theft and the Quest for Justice, at Krausenstrasse 1718 Berlin. Dina Gold was born and raised in the UK, and is now an American citizen living in the nation's capital where she's on the board of the Jewish Community Center and just completed her stint as co-chair on the Council of the Washington Jewish Film Festival. A senior editor at Moment Magazine, she started her career in London as a financial journalist after postgraduate studies at Corpus Christi College, Oxford. Later at the BBC, she worked as an investigative reporter and television producer. You can learn more about this story of a generational quest for justice at StolenLegacy.com. You can also follow our guest on Twitter at Dina underscore gold and also at the book Twitter account, Stolen underscore Legacy. To describe the theft at the heart of Stolen Legacy, I uncovered this rarely heard audio of Herbert Hoover. He was the only living U.S. president at the time of World War II and the Holocaust. Americans are and should be indignant at the terrible outbreak of Jewish persecution in Germany and the attacks upon the Christian faith. This represents an attack of brutal intolerance which has no parallel in modern history except possibly the destruction of religious worship in Russia by the Bolsheviks. This rise of intolerance in Germany today, the suffering being inflicted on an innocent and helpless people, grieve every decent American. It raises our every sense of indignation and our every resentment. It makes us fearful, 
for the whole progress of civilization. It is our hope that those springs of tolerance and morals and of human compassion which lie deep in the German people may yet rise to control. But in the meantime, our condemnation of these leaders should be without reserve. They are bringing to Germany a moral isolation from the entire world. Okay, now that we've reached Checkpoint Charlie, let's cross the border with Dina Gold into the old East Berlin and go in search of the Wolf family's stolen legacy. I'm joined on the line by Dina Gold, author of Stolen Legacy, Nazi Theft and the Quest for Justice at Krausenstrasse 1718 Berlin. Thank you for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Well, it's a great pleasure to join you, Dean. Well, the pleasure is all mine. This book was very exciting. I like to read it. I like the quest for justice. There it is right there in your headline. I always want to find a book that has a mission. And this one's it doesn't end with the last page, even the first edition. That's something that's so rare where you have a book. Maybe you have something, some new paper, some new revelation about a figure, but usually somebody writes a book and then they just move on to the next book. As far as historians go, we usually know everything. This Stolen Legacy is such a living, breathing book, and it is about the theft of one building, and it's the story of one family, your family, but we wanted to start off with a quote that puts it in that broader context that's so important when we're talking about the Holocaust. It's a quote by Walter Reich, former director of the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. He says, quote, the Holocaust, the project of exterminating Europe's Jews, was an immense act of murder. It was also an immense act of theft. The murder was, of course, the incomparably greater crime. The dead could never be brought back to life, unquote. You wanted to set the stage with that quote, and I thought that was a good idea to give us that broader perspective. So speak to that. Well, I never forget, of course, that the Holocaust was a genocide. But it was also the greatest state-organized theft in history. And that's the part of the story that I've looked at in Stolen Legacy. And it doesn't draw anything away. It just gives us a way to remember, I would say, when you read the book, because obviously a huge part of this book is also going to be all of the people that lost their lives. The property is secondary. Some people were very fortunate to escape just with their lives. They would have traded everything. Often they had to trade everything just to be able to get to freedom. But here, by focusing on this one building, it personalizes it. It's this thing that we hear often said about the million deaths being a statistic. Here we're talking about six million Jews killed in the Holocaust. Easy to forget all the things that went into it. Easy to forget that their lives were woven into this community. And that's something that you cite here many times. You talk about how there are people that aren't cut and dry. They don't have a straight line here, either to the death camps or to escaping. This is something that creeps up on them. Stolen Legacy is part mystery, part investigative expose, and even a little bit of a thriller with chapter names that I'll tease the listeners with. For instance, the terrible truth about Dr. Kurt Hamann and the curious case of Dr. Emil Hertzfelder. 
The journey all starts simply over coffee and cake with your grandmother, Nellie Wolf. This is after the war. You're near Harrods in London. What was that childhood keyhole view of history like? And how did you set about widening it into a book of this broad scope? Well, exactly as you said, she used to love taking me out for coffee and cakes in a very, very fancy patisserie, which used to exist opposite Harrods, and she liked to reminisce to me. I was the only one in the family who took her reminiscences seriously. I I loved listening to her stories, and they were wonderful. She had lived a tremendously glamorous lifestyle. If you imagine sort of Downton Abbey-like, she had married into a very prosperous family, the Wolf family, um, her her father-in-law had owned one of the largest fur companies in Germany before the war. They lived in a lovely villa in Wannsee by the lake. They had maids, gardeners, chauffeur for the Mercedes. They had cooks and nannies for the children. And Nellie loved to do lavish entertaining. And it was a marvelous life she had lived. And I lapped it all up. I was a little girl. I loved to hear the stories. And Nellie, when I knew her, had very little money. She'd lost all of that life. And she dreamt and dreamt of one day rekindling the lifestyle that she had lost. And she would say to me, when the Berlin Wall comes down and we can get back our building, I will manage to have money again. That building lay behind the Berlin Wall, just behind the wall. And it was impossible to claim it. You say just behind the wall. That's something that leaped out at me in the first few pages of Stolen Legacy. You have a map, and here's the Wolf Building's location. And you start to look around it, and you say, wow, even here as an American living in 2017 who's into history, there are things cluttered right around just a couple of blocks. You have Checkpoint Charlie right there. You have Hitler's Bunker. The former location is just a block up the Brandenburg Gate, and the Berlin Wall hooks right around it. This is literally a stone's throw from history and from the very end of the war, yet the building survives, and it's great to see it standing there. And your legacy endures, even though the entire country has been destroyed from within and from without. Describe how that building's central location comes to be, how it represents your great-grandfather's work and his family's life as Jewish Germans who are woven as citizens into the national fabric of the country before Hitler's rise to power. So the family was, as you rightly say, totally integrated into German society. In many ways, they felt more German than Jewish, although they had seats at Fasanerstrasse Synagogue in Berlin, where Leo Beck was once the rabbi. But they had a Christmas tree, and the children used to have Easter eggs. The maids used to hide them in the garden. And I've got some lovely 1920s black and white film of the children running around in the garden of the villa in Wannsee, picking up chocolate, Easter eggs, and rabbits. Now, my grandfather, Herbert, who was Nellie's husband, had served in World War I. He fought for the Kaiser and won the Iron Cross, as many Jews did. And uh, Victor Wolfe's brother-in-law, that Victor was the uh, father-in-law of Nellie, his brother-in-law, Alphonse David, he was a Supreme Court judge in Leipzig and president of the Senate of the Supreme Court. He felt himself 100% German. This family was German. 100,000, is it 
Jewish German soldiers fought in the Great War. So this was not, not uncommon that they would feel like they were part of it. This was their country. Absolutely. Yes, totally. They were Germans. And then we all know what happens. The National Socialist Party under Adolf Hitler comes to power. Citizens of Jewish backgrounds suddenly are seeing their lives turned upside down. They're suddenly looked at as less than German. Their rights are steadily eroded, rights to own property, to hold certain jobs, things like this. It starts small and builds up steadily. Some see the writing on the wall, literally often writing on the wall, telling them to get out, telling them they're not wanted in this Germany that they've served for all these years and called home. But even those fortunate few suffer the financial hardships, things like losing buildings, losing property, losing everything. What role does that play in your family story and your grandmother ultimately making it to London? This is no small feat that you're able to be sitting there by Harrods in London and having cakes because there's many women in the Holocaust and men that were never able to have those moments with grandchildren, never had grandchildren because their lives are cut short. So how do they end up being able to be in London? Well, what happened when the Nazis came to power was that my mother would come home from school with horrible stories of what the other little girls were doing to her, putting her on a chair and dancing around her, singing when Jewish blood spurts from the knife all will be good, and putting Der Stürmer in her desk, a horrible anti-Semitic magazine. And my grandfather said, I'm not bringing up my family in this atmosphere. We're leaving. And in fact, they went first of all, to the British Mandate of Palestine. And Herbert's younger brother, Fritz, was arrested shortly after the Reichstag fire and put in Spandau prison. When he was released, he tried to manage the family affairs as best he could, renting out the building to other Jewish clothing manufacturers and selling off parcels of land on the estate in Wannsee to pay the mortgage. But his brother, Herbert, my grandfather, and his wife and three children were all in Palestine. And my mother was sent at the age of 14 to school in England alone. And from the age of 14, basically brought herself up alone. The rest of the family stayed in Palestine. And in due course, they all became Israeli citizens. And Nellie used to come and visit us in London. And that's how I got to know her. But you ask what happened to the family building. Well, to begin with, I knew nothing about it. And actually, Nellie didn't really know much. But it was taken. And during my investigations, I did discover the history of what had happened. I found an old 1910 architectural magazine, which had photos of the building when it had just been constructed. The article accompanying the photo explained the history of the building. And in 1908, Victor Wolf, Nellie's father-in-law, had hired a renowned architect and had had the building constructed as the headquarters of his H. Wolf Fur Company. And when it was finished in 1910, it was such a wonderful building, six stories high, filling a whole block, going back to the next parallel street with two inner courtyards, that it featured in, in an architectural magazine. So that I found very interesting. But what had happened, this took me a long time to find out. And it was only after the Berlin Wall fell, and I really, I went to Germany and I started digging, that I discovered the history. And what a moment that must have been to see it for the first time, because as you said, this was just 
sort of a fairy tale place that your grandmother described to you. And I'm sure you pictured it a thousand ways. And then there it is staring at you, almost like finding a picture of a lost relative in their youth. Here's the building brand new before all this happens. That must have been an amazing moment for you to sit there and hold it in your hands, a picture of it. Yes, it was actually amazing. And then, of course, I decided after the wall fell that I really needed to go to Germany and see it. And that's what I did. I uh, flew to Berlin and I got in a taxi and I gave the taxi driver an address. And we passed the Berlin Wall with all the graffiti on it. And we, he pulled up outside a huge building with flags outside it and plaques on the wall. And it was starting to snow. It was bitterly cold. It was December 1990. And I got out and I got somebody to take a photograph of me standing outside it. And then I thought, well... What do I do now? Do, do I get back in the taxi and go back to my hotel or do I go in? And I thought, well, I've come all this way. It would be rather a shame not to take things further. So I marched in and I asked to speak to the most senior person there. And he came down to reception and I said to him, I've come to claim my family's building. And he laughed at me, but I explained a little bit of the history and he ushered me into the canteen and he said, you wait here, I'm going to phone head office. Now at the time, it was the, it had been the headquarters of the East German Railways. But when I was there, it was the Berlin outpost of the German Ministry of Transport. So he left uh, to make a phone call. And at that time at that point I did feel quite emotional I was standing inside the building which almost 60 years earlier my mother had come to as a child she was taken there by her father and grandfather in the chauffeur driven Mercedes and she was allowed to go downstairs where they stored the pelts for making into fur coats and her father used to say to her you can jump on the rabbits but you mustn't jump on the ermine and you mustn't jump on the mink (laughs) and here was I standing in the building that she had come to as a little five or six year old to play and it was quite overwhelming I did feel that yes your grandmother passed away by that point yes my my grandmother Nellie died in 1977 she never saw the wall come down a great shame And they rented that building, correct? They rented it out to other Jewish clothing manufacturers to have their offices in. After the family fled to uh, the British Mandate of Palestine, they did rent out office space, yes, in order to pay off the mortgage. And the mortgage, that's the key moment here, just filling blanks in here for listeners. This is really a book where there are so many little sub-stories in it that were only scratching the surface. So I would encourage people, if your appetite is whetted here a little bit by the story and we seem to be speeding past things, this is a book really that you have to pick up to get the full flavor of this. This really has a massive scope and it's a living, breathing book where things keep being discovered and added. People will read it and they'll find their own stories intersecting with it. And the idea of losing the building, that's something that this is a direct influence of the Nazis and the direct uh, influence of Hitler and his Albert Speer, his uh, infamous pet architect there where he has him building. That's why they target this building. They target it for its beauty. They targeted it because it was useful. What had happened, I discovered in the course of my investigation, was that the building next door, number 1920 Krausenstrasse, the owners had defaulted on their mortgage. And 
the Reichsbahn, Hitler's railways, had taken it over. And then they spotted a building next door owned by Jews. And the Victoria Insurance Company, which still exists today and is owned by Ergo Insurance, which itself is owned by Munich Re, a huge reinsurance company, uh, they foreclosed on it. The family lawyers put up a spirited fight to try and hold on to it, but no, it was taken. Uh, and this was in 1937. And as you rightly say, the reason that the Reichsbahn wanted it was because at the time, Albert Speer, Hitler's architect, was redesigning central Berlin and the Reichsbahn needed somewhere to put their architects in, in order to enact Speer's plans. And shockingly, I did discover that the building at number 1920 had been paid, the owners of it had been paid 40% more than our family was paid per square meter, which did show that this was Nazi racist laws in force. And why do you think that was? It was because the other family that had owned 1920, they were Prussians, not Jews. They get them out, the Victoria company there, the insurance company. Amazing to see the wheels of this state or the tentacles, maybe you'd say, of the Leviathan. I'm picturing those old World War II posters that came out of Britain showing the octopus with all the swastikas on it reaching its tendrils into every facet of Jewish life. Something as basic here as owning a building, paying your mortgage, having a place to live and work, a very centrally located place, which is what I was trying to get out there with the map, showing it right there in central Berlin. This is an important part of the life in Berlin. This is a significant business. This is something that's built up to take a prominent role. And then slowly, 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 they're pushed out and told, you're, you're not wanted here. You're not allowed to do business here. You have to move on. We, we want what you have, so get out. That's right. That's exactly what happened. Yep. And of course, I, I have lists of other buildings that were also foreclosed on. I mean, but the example of the Wolf family is absolutely by no means unique. This was going on all over Berlin and Germany. Maybe the unique part is that you had the ability and the training or the background and, and certainly the drive to want to go and fight this and try to research it. You write in Stolen Legacy, quote, the more I looked, the more I uncovered it. That is the joy of successful research. And I love that moment because I am picturing you finding these things. And instead of feeling overwhelmed, you press into the work, you keep looking. Ultimately, when you want to write a book, you have to have an endpoint, even if it is this living, breathing book that I talked about, and you are getting new information. So I wanted to ask about that part of your craft. How did you go about this task of paring down a mountain of ever-growing information into a book that would hold the interest of readers outside your family and even outside any connection with the Jewish experience during the war? It's just really a good old-fashioned story. It's, it's a little bit like Woman in Gold, but of course, Maria Altman was going after a painting, but I was going after a building, or even, say, Erin Brockovich, trying to right a wrong. And I did feel I was trying to right a wrong in the way that an ordinary person can, as much as they can, in pursuit of justice. I was trying to find out a legal case and find out the truth of what had happened. And I do think anybody can identify with that. So in terms of writing the book, it was to the challenge was to structure it in a way that an ordinary person can follow the argument. 
And I tried to do that as chronologically as I could, but it was just telling the story. We're speaking with author Dina Gold. Her book is Stolen Legacy, Nazi Theft and the Quest for Justice at Krausenstrasse 1718 Berlin. Visit our guest at StolenLegacy.com and follow her at Twitter. She has two handles, both Dina underscore Gold and at Stolen underscore Legacy. Nazi hunter Serge Klarsfeld says of Dina Gold's journey, quote, Her property becomes, in a way, the reader's property, and we follow with great interest and intensity her efforts to recover not only a material legacy, but the entire history of her family, unquote. Dina, that idea of recovering your family's history is precious to many listeners. Here you're reaching out to family. There's your building in Berlin. You're up there in England. I thought often of my one set of grandparents who lost everything at the hands of the Ottoman genocide a century ago. I talked about that in my interview on the book Smyrna, September 1922, also called The Great Fire. That's all lost history for us, for my family. The other family was more recent. It's in living memory, even my living memory. I was a small child when the Turkish invasion of northern Cyprus occurred. That's the early 70s. They lost their farm. There was a church there that my grandfather had raised money for in England. They were living in London at the time, my grandmother and grandfather. So that's all lost. And I think it's a story that we can relate to here. I found myself cheering for you because in a way it was seeing somebody achieve that justice that won't happen for my generation, but maybe for a couple of generations of our family down the road. What do you say to readers of Stolen Legacy to inspire them in their own quests to reclaim family history that's been lost to the ravages of war or to answer questions like the ones you raise here in the book where there's maybe names of somebody in a family that they have no idea what happened to it and they, I'm sure, come up to you at these events and and ask you for help. Maybe all you can give them is inspiration. So what do you tell them about fighting to a conclusion that's as satisfying as yours here in Stolen Legacy? Well, I think that you in particular have a very great feel for this. I think you and I and all of us actually have an obligation to remember our family histories and to tell it to others. And there is an emotional value in the stolen memories and of buildings and possessions which the families had stolen or destroyed. I know that uh, Greek Cypriots, they've lost their frescoes and icons and chalices and Bibles and coins, mosaics and statues. They were all stolen by smugglers and sold off. And I think Actually, you and I understand this, that we think of how the second and third generation, like us, need to pass on our family stories, and perhaps even more than our parents feel that need. My mother didn't really want to look back in life. She had forged a new life for herself in England, and she just wanted to look forward. But I think people have long memories. For example, when I went into the building, this was in 1990, The manager said to me, you know, this building is referred to as the Wolf Building, but no one really knew why. Hmm. So my message to people is you will be surprised at what you can find out. And you're right. When I do speak about the book, people do ask me for help. Many, many people want to discover their family background, what happened to people that were lost, And you would be amazed what you can find these days. 
The internet is a great joy in doing research, but there are many, many organizations that can help you. Now, for Jews, you can go to the International Tracing Service, which has amazing resources. Yad Vashem in uh, Jerusalem, uh, the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum has a wealth of information. I went to the British National Archives in Kew and also to the U.S. National Archives in College Park, Maryland. There, there are so many resources now that you can tap into, and it is staggering what you can discover. And something occurs to me as we're talking today, we've shot a bunch of emails back and forth. And one of them was about this artifact that, of all people, the pop singer Boy George had purchased an icon of Christ that he had no idea where it came from. He bought it, and I think he had it 26 years. It was looted from a Cypriot church, the Church of St. Charlambos, and he is giving an interview on the BBC, and somebody watching, some eagle-eyed Cypriot, sees the icona on the wall behind him and says, that's from our church. Where, where did he get that? And Boy George was really fantastic about it. He gave it back. He didn't want any money for it. He was glad to see it be returned to its rightful place. So that's something else that we don't always think of. We purchase something, we see something, there's an artifact maybe in your family, and that can be connected to somebody's story. You ask, where did it come from? What's the story? How did it end up being for sale? There's so many ways that you can enter into a story like this and start to ask questions, things you might not even know that you have. I talked about, again, in that interview on the Smyrna book about how valuable the sewing machine was to my grandmother and then to my mother. And my father was saying, here, I'll give it to you when they moved. He said, you, you just get rid of it. And it sat in my garage and then we moved and I said, well, maybe I, I should get rid of it. And I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it, you know? And <laughs> it turned out that I opened a page of this book and here are all these Greek people being driven out of their homes by the Turkish soldiers. And there's a very elderly priest carrying a singer sewing machine. And this author explained to me that that was such a valuable commodity. It was almost like the wolf building here. There are many Greeks who were also furriers. So this was their way of making a living was if you could sew. So that was such an important thing. And this was belonged to the grandmother who was from Cyprus and she brought it with her from Cyprus. So this was an important artifact. And I had no idea why the value of it was passed down to me from my mother and then from her mother, why this was such a valuable thing. I just knew it. And then by reading about it, I discovered this story. I saw this great picture of a, a similar man carrying it. He's hunched over. He barely can carry it. But these are the kind of things you find here in Stolen Legacy that make me think, hey, that's worth reading about. Even if I think there's no connection, even if you think all of your records have been burned and destroyed in the war, you can do this. You can go there, see the building. You can boldly state as you did, hey, I'm here to recover some of my family history. I want to know what happened here. Well, just before we move on to what happened, I'll tell you that on the topic of sewing machines, you might be interested in this. When the Nazis looted the clothing manufacturing companies in Berlin, which were owned by Jews, they seized the sewing machines. And instead of destroying them, they sent them to the Lodz ghetto. And the Jewish slaves there used them to make clothes. Yeah. Often from probably the clothes that had been stolen from them in the first place. What a, what a world to have to sit through, right? What a world indeed, yes. Well, after I had marched into the building, the bureaucrat who had invited me in 
came back and he said to me, head office tells me they've been waiting for this to happen, but they didn't know if anybody had survived the war. Tell me your story. And so I told him as much as I could. And at the end, he said to me, you must get this building back for your mother. And at that point, I confessed to him I had no documents. I could not stand up a legal case. And he very bravely, actually, for an East Berlin official said to me, the documents exist. You go out there and find them, but I can tell you they exist. And that's what I did. That's all I needed, the encouragement to go out there and start looking. So I had to prove three legal issues. One, that the family owned the building rather than had rented. And I had to prove that they had lost it due to Nazi persecution. And I had to prove who was a legal inheritor. Now, Nellie had always claimed that she was. But claiming it is a whole different issue to being able to prove it in a court of law. Yeah, so there were three tranches that I had to satisfy in order to launch a legal claim. Now, I managed to get hold of the land registry documents which charted the ownership and what had happened. It was quite clear that the family had owned it and that it had been taken by the Victoria Insurance Company and handed straight to the Reichsbahn, not put up for auction to the highest bidder. And fascinatingly, at the end of the land registry documents was a Soviet insertion put there in November 1948 by somebody who was a part of the Soviet occupation forces. And I will quote one sentence from it. It said in this note, the Jewish private owner was forced to sell because of the political circumstances of the time. We request that you do not sell this property. I was ecstatic. This showed that the Soviets recognized that it had been stolen from Jews. And then I needed to prove who was an inheritor. And my great-grandmother had had the building in her name until she died in 1932. And after that, it had been administered by a lawyer on behalf of her heirs. And I needed to prove who they were. Well, my father, who was in the British Royal Air Force all through the war, said to me, you'll find nothing. We bombed them. We really flattened them. There's nothing left. Well, he was wrong because we found the will in the district court of Charlottenburg. And there was the will which had been written in 1932, just before Lucy Wolfe died. And Nellie had been right all along. She was indeed named as an inheritor, as was my mother. So I had proved legally that we had a valid claim. It's hard work though. And um, I was lucky that it was in Germany because the Germans are meticulous in holding on to documents. I don't know how fortunate people will be trying to do this across the rest of Eastern Europe. And it, shockingly, actually, less than 20% of Nazi stolen property has ever been restituted. So I feel that we were fortunate that I had the ability to do this and to stand up the case because I'm not sure how many people can do it. The Berlin Wall comes down and there the timer starts. You're finally able to actually physically get to the building, but also access these records like the ones you just mentioned of the Russians keeping that they know where the building came from. They know who the yeah. rightful owners are. So that's something you have to go there. There's also a lot of lawyers involved. You have to talk to them. You have to get their help. You're talking about language barriers, all of these roadblocks there. And yet you keep on persisting so that this long ago Nazi theft can be made right. 
What made you then decide that you'll take the leap to writing this book? What was the inspiration for saying, I have to tell other people and eventually produce Stolen Legacy, despite the fact that you just had so much data to work with? Well, I came to Washington in 2008. I had been a BBC journalist for many, many years, but then I came here and I met Ambassador Stuart Eisenstadt, the US Special Advisor on Holocaust Issues. And he encouraged me to write the story because as he rightly said, there are so many outstanding things across the whole of Eastern Europe. And maybe if I could write this, story of of my fight to to get back the building, it might help others. He said that to the best of his knowledge, he knew of no book on a successful restitution of a building as opposed to art. And um, with his encouragement, I started drafting uh, the story outline. It's almost like the MacGuffin in fiction is the wolf building. It propels the plot, but it is not an end of itself. Stolen Legacy makes clear this was never about the money or just a real estate transaction. The ultimate goal sits there. Like I said, it's it's almost like that MacGuffin. It sits there throughout the book of you're going to make this right somehow. But I wonder when you were spending those years, when you were having those challenges, when you sat there in that office in the Wolf Building itself and said, I have no documentation, what kept you going in those dead ends? You know, it's easy to run down a dead end and just slump down and sit there and say, oh, forget it, turn the car off and maybe weep and feel like you let your grandmother down here, you let your mother down. What kept you going in those moments where you felt, I I don't know where to turn next? Well, you're quite right. I was utterly focused. I I had many emotions. I felt that I owed it to Nellie's memory. Uh, after all, she'd filled my head with these stories of her former life. And I felt that if there had been an injustice, then I had to do whatever I could to put things right. And I had been an investigative journalist for many years at the BBC, and I'm not the sort of person to be easily put off. So... If I hit a dead end, I try a different angle. And there are many, many angles to pursue on this. My grandfather's younger brother, Fritz, he stayed in Berlin. He never left, even though he had the opportunity to do so. And I wanted to know what had happened to him. So that was another angle to pursue. And every angle that you chase, sometimes all sorts of things come out of the woodwork that gives you an extra picture of of the overall story. It was fascinating. You added on to the second edition here to the paperback, and I know I'll say it a third time. This is a living, breathing book. There's so much still happening. Part of it is there in chapter 35 without giving away the meat of the tale and stolen legacy. And really, we can't do that because we don't have the final line of this story written next. It's currently happening all across the U.S. where people are looking at the names of buildings, somebody like John C. Calhoun, the big states rights, big Confederate hero whose name has been stripped off buildings, statues are coming down. You have a case like this that you touch upon in Stolen Legacy and that is still ongoing to this day. How does this doctor weave his way into your family story and what's the update on that? Yes, you're absolutely right. During the research, um, I came across a very interesting character called Dr. Kurt Hummann. He was the chairman of the Victoria Insurance Company from 1935 until he retired in 1968. And under his leadership, the Victoria 
which, as I have said, still exists today, uh, it foreclosed on multiple Jewish-owned properties. And I was really curious about this man. My husband, who was the only one who supported me from the very start on this adventure, he went to the British National Archives in Kew, and he discovered on his first day there a 1944 confidential booklet called Who's Who in Nazi Germany. Now, the British knew that they were going to win the war, and they were looking at who they would need to interview. And this booklet, it's 148 pages with over 1,000 names in it. On page 67 is Joseph Goebbels. On page 74 is Adolf Hitler. And sandwiched between them on page 70 was Kurt Hamann. Now, he is an interesting character because I discovered, to my horror, that after the war, this Dr. Hamann, he was awarded Germany's highest civilian honor in 1953, the Federal Cross of Merit. Now, what I also discovered was that the Victoria, during the war, had been part of a consortium of insurance companies insuring SS-owned slave labor factories in Auschwitz, Buchenwald, and Stutthof. Now, I have the insurance policy documents, so there's no doubt about it. There's no denying it. And now, would you believe it? And this is where it ties into current events in the United States. There is a foundation in Dr. Hammond's honor at Mannheim University. So given the furious debate and demonstrations that are going on now in America, what do you think should be done about the foundation at Mannheim? They're talking about renaming it. Is this correct? But it's not that easy for them, it doesn't seem. Uh, well, I'm in correspondence with the president of Mannheim University, Professor von Fadden, and he says it isn't easy to either close it down or rename it because there are articles of association. He has now commissioned a historian to look into the life of Dr. Hammond. I'm not quite sure how that's going to help matters because there's no question that this consortium existed when he was the chairman of the insurance company. And ultimately, I think this is one for the university to decide on. Uh, it's not necessarily for me or you or any of us, but I think that if they leave the foundation, the Dr. Kurt Hummann Foundation in place, I think that students need to be aware of his actions during the war. I am waiting for the university's commissioned historian to report on what he finds. I'm not sure what they can possibly dig up, which will exonerate him. So that's a story that we'll keep focusing on. Maybe we can do a follow-up interview. Hopefully someday there'll be a positive resolution that we'll want to talk about. As I mentioned, this book just keeps growing. It's an amazing story and that it's not one that you just put on the shelf and forget it is one that I think I'll keep seeing you on Twitter, on your two accounts, and I'll keep reading stories and hopefully you'll keep emailing me about it, give me updates, and I can share those with listeners out there who are fascinated by the way that it keeps growing. Stolen Legacy is still in progress. The paper edition, your website, stolenlegacy.com, for more on those. Is there any one piece of the story, though, that you hold out hope of finding? I guess you're somebody who's very active in this, as you said, investigating, so you don't just sit there holding out hope. But is there one piece that you're working on? Is there one bit of deferred justice that you're still hoping to find and still working to find? And then maybe if anybody out there has any information on, they can help you out of that dead end and onward to the mission of this book. Is there something like that that still jumps out at you? 
Yes, there are two things actually. One is my mother's uncle, Fritz Wolf, who stayed on in Berlin. He must have been working and Companies in, in Germany do not have to open their books on who they were employing as slave laborers. Now, ultimately, he was deported in March 1943 to Auschwitz and murdered. So I would love to know what happened to him. But interestingly, the story comes to America because until he was deported, he was living in a Jewish apartment with other Jews. All Jews had to live together. And one of the people he lived with was a man called Joseph Rosner, who was originally born in Vienna. I know what happened to the other people in the apartment. I know what happened to all of them. But I had a real problem tracking down what happened to Joseph Rosner because he's not in the normal archives of remembrance. And it appeared to me that he probably had survived, but I couldn't trace him. Well, a historian at the Holocaust Memorial Museum here in Washington did find him. He was on a ship's manifest leaving Rotterdam and arriving in New York in 1940, he got out. And then I tracked him, he ended up in Florida. So if anybody in Florida ever knew Joseph Rosnard or his wife, Sarah, they died there and they're buried in Florida, I would love to know. He was an artist and sculptor. There must be people who have some of his paintings. I have no photo of him. It would be wonderful to find somebody who once knew him or who has a photo. How do you spell his name? Rosner. Joseph, and he spells it either J-O-S-E-F or J-O-S-E-P-H. Rosner, R-O-S-N-E-R. Well, Dina Gold, this is really just scratching the surface of stolen legacy. I hope that I was able to do it justice today. I felt like there was a real pressure that I put on myself, and I really wanted to do justice and further your mission of justice. Thank you for putting this triumphant story into my hands. You emailed me, you pitched the idea to me, and I just thought, well, this is the reason why we read history. This is the reason why I do this show and share these books, because history is still living in all of us. We want to be able to reclaim it and certainly pass it on to future generations and inspire maybe those people who have lost hope of someday recovering their stolen legacies or their forgotten family legacies lost to the ravages of war. There are answers out there. You prove that here in Stolen Legacy. I want to thank you, and I want to thank your husband, Simon. As you said, he was with you there from the very beginning. Best of luck with Stolen Legacy, with continuing to add to it, continuing to answer questions. And I hope that we'll hear from you again down the road when we have more resolution and more inspiring tales of justice to add to Stolen Legacy. Well, thank you, Dean, so much for inviting me onto the History Author Show. It's been wonderful talking to you. Again, the book is Stolen Legacy, Nazi Theft and the Quest for Justice at Krausenstrasse 1718 Berlin. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate using the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com we take it Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My sincere thanks to Dini Gold for joining us. 
and for sharing this quest for restitution. Remember, you can learn more at StolenLegacy.com and follow our guest on Twitter at Dina underscore gold or follow the book's account, Stolen underscore Legacy. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.